Well, if we're honest, when it comes to disciplines of the Christian life, if there's one area that tends to provoke perhaps fear or guilt, it's probably the area more so than others of witnessing, of, of talking about Jesus Christ to unbelievers, of sharing the truth of Jesus Christ. Uh, it can be a persistent source of fear for us as believers. Um, I want you to turn to John chapter 1 this morning. As we look in the Gospel of John and continue our study this morning, um, we're going to look at really the first witness of Jesus Christ, who is John the Baptist. And in looking at his life, I, I think we get some good lessons about ministry for ourselves in terms of being a witness for Jesus Christ. There's some good insights here about John uh, that I think will help us in our own understanding of evangelism. It's tempting when you come to John chapter 1 and you read verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and we're in the book of John. The assumption is, well, this must be the guy. Uh, and as we said back in the introduction to this book, the actual name of the human author, the Apostle John, is not mentioned anywhere in the Gospel of John. He's only, by that title, only mentioned uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, the one that we'll see later in the chapter uh, baptizing people at the Jordan River. Uh, so this is not the same John. This is the Apostle John writing about John the Baptist. So we'll try to keep them, I'll try to keep them separate as we, uh, as we go through this this morning. Um, in Luke chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, but that's where we get the, the first introduction to who John the Baptist is. He is a relative of Jesus of some sort because um, we meet Elizabeth, who is described as a relative of Mary, who, of course, gave birth to Jesus. And, and so it's not defined specifically what that relation is, but she is expecting a son when we come to her in Luke chapter 1, and that son is John, who is born six months before Jesus Christ is born, who precedes him then in ministry. And Luke describes some fairly remarkable circumstances around John's birth as well, in that um, Elizabeth and Zechariah are older. They are not anticipating having children any longer. Zechariah is serving in the temple in Jerusalem as a priest, and that's when an angel appears to him and says, you are going to have a son, and his name will be John. And Zechariah is stunned by that. Um, in fact, I'll read to you from Luke chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. It says that Zechariah's son will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So, Speaking to John the Baptist's father before he is born, the promise is a son whose ministry will be one of preparation, one who will go before, who will uh, sort of prepare the way, if you will, for the coming of God's anointed one, for the coming of the, the actual Messiah. Uh, we being around the D.C. area, if, we're, you know, if you're familiar with politics, you may have heard of advanced teams, uh, those folks who go out before the candidate shows up at a, at a campaign stop, and they make sure that all the logistics are in place and the flags are properly placed and the signs and all that look good and the crowd is large enough so that when they get the pictures and it gets on TV, it, it looks really good. Well, in a far less contrived way, and much more serious than that, John is sort of the advance man for Jesus Christ. It is John's work to go and to say to the nation that the Messiah is coming, 
that there is one coming that you need to be prepared for. Understand at this point in their history, it has been 400 years since they have heard from a prophet who has said, here is the word of the Lord. So it has been centuries of silence as far as they can tell, for, as far as revelation goes from God. And so this is not exactly an anticipatory nation. They are not sort of on the edge of their seat waiting for the Messiah to show up. If anything, they've sort of gone back to life as normal and the religious activities are just sort of the routines that they take part in, sort of out of habit more than anything. Um, and, and so John's call is to come to this, this nation of people who for the most part are, are spiritually dead and, and come to them and call them to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And so John steps into that scene as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of a voice crying out in the wilderness. He is not the... Um, suave and handsome advanced guy that just immediately draws crowds to himself. He is one who looks like he is from the wilderness and he speaks tough, I guess is one way to put it at least. His preaching is very straight to the point, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, it says. Here's some of his preaching from Luke chapter 3 verse 7. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance? And do not begin to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That is not exactly the warm-up act you want to use in order to draw a crowd, generally speaking, or to make the crowd all warm and fuzzy. That is John coming out and saying, oh, you bunch of snakes have showed up, huh? You've crawled out from under your rock, and why? Because you think you're something special because you're Jewish, because you can call yourself descendants of Abraham? Well, I'm here to tell you God could make children of Abraham out of these rocks. So don't come to me and, and try to impress me in any way. As a matter of fact, he calls them to repentance and to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Turn from your sin and go from here. If you're going to be baptized here, go and live a life that demonstrates that sort of repentance. So interesting start to his ministry. That's John's opening call, and that is the way he is preparing the way for the, the coming of Jesus Christ. Turn from your selfish and sinful ways and repent. Luke 3 goes on, and it records more of that, that message. And, and it shows John sort of picking different points of Jewish life and showing how they have strayed from the law, how they are disobeying God, and, and he is simply, again, putting them on the spot, really, for their sin. The good news and the bad news from John's preaching is that it starts to provoke the crowd to think, okay... Maybe a Messiah is coming. This is something unusual. This isn't what they were used to from their rabbis. And so they begin to ponder that there is indeed a, a Messiah approaching. But the bad news for John is they begin to ask, maybe it's him. Maybe it's this guy with his unusual preaching. And so John responds to that in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John understood his ministry. John was there to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, and the moment people start saying, wait, are, 
Are you that Messiah? John says, no, no, no. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. So I'm not even in the same league. When he comes, he will be a righteous judge. He will come with the authority and the righteousness of God by which he can judge all. And that's how John begins now to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. So back to John 1, and we'll pick up in verse 6 and just read a few more verses down and begin to look at how John the Baptist is introduced. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So as we're introduced to John this morning, and we'll go down as far as verse 13 this morning, I want to show you three contrasts in this passage between John the Baptist and Jesus. Three contrasts that, that the Apostle John seems to be setting out for us that I think by way of application are really helpful for us in terms of ministry, particularly seeking to reach the lost, as we see John as a witness. There, there will be a contrast of identity, a contrast of ministry, and a contrast of ability. First, for this contrast of identity, John will be identified as a lamp. We'll see that in just a few minutes. John is a human lamp. Jesus is the true divine light. Human lamp and divine light. John's calling, as it says here in verse 7, is to bear witness to the light. It is to, to point people to the light, to testify about Jesus Christ. And so in that way, he stands as a marvelous example for you and I, because that's what you and I are called to do, is to go into the world and proclaim the gospel, to, to make disciples of all nations. And so what John is called to do is something we can learn from by, by watching and learning from Scripture's description here of John. Verse 6 starts that introduction with the words, there was a man sent from God. I, I think that's a very intentional description of John that he begins with there. In light of all we looked at last week in verses 1 through 5, where the Apostle John is introducing us to Jesus Christ, whom he's describing as the Word. As we saw last week in those opening verses, he's making the point that Jesus, the Word in flesh, is God. Jesus is creator. Jesus is overcomer when it comes to sin and death and darkness. Jesus is eternal God. That whole opening section is designed to cause us to see Jesus as eternal and, and in fact, to make the contrast between the eternal and the created. So he even says there, in the beginning was the Word, and then in verse 3, all things were made through him. And so the contrast in those opening verses was to say, Jesus is pre-existent, self-existent. We have a beginning point. We have a starting point in history. We are created beings. Um, and, and so you, we see that, that dichotomy very clearly. I think the same contrast is being done here when it comes to John. Verse 6, when it says there was a man sent from God, at least that's what the ESV says. You may have something different in your translation, and it might be better. The ESV, I think, misses it a little bit here because that verb for was in verse 6 is the same verb used in verse 3 when it says all things were made through him. It's the, it means came into being or came into existence. And so it's the idea that a man came into being or came into existence who was sent from God. I think John's being very purposeful in the way he describes that. He doesn't need to say John came into be John was a man, John came into being, John came into existence. We, 
We know that, that John's a human being. But he's doing that purposefully to distinguish between Jesus, eternal, preexistent, and then this man who came into being. John is an ordinary man. Don't think of him as more than you ought. And, and, and so even as we look at his life and we see him here in the Gospel of John preaching with power and, and influencing great crowds and baptizing, part of what the Apostle John wants to tell us right from the beginning is, this is an ordinary man. This is a man called by God, sent by God, empowered by God to do ministry. Verse 9, when he talks about Jesus, You've got the, there was a man or there, there came into existence a man sent from God. And then when he goes back to Jesus in verse 9, it's the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. There's the was again. The same idea that he existed previously and then there was a moment when he came into the world. He didn't come into being. John did. Jesus always was. He simply came to earth incarnate. So he's setting up this contrast between eternal preexistent God and created man. Turn to John chapter 5 for just a second. Jesus is talking here about John the Baptist. John chapter 5 down in verse 33. And just look at what Jesus says in terms of contrasting himself to John. John 5, 33. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus in this passage is, is talking to a skeptical crowd. They are already beginning to reject him. They are already beginning to reject the notion that he's, he's claiming to be God and, and they're already poised to want to kill him. And Jesus is not backing down at all from his claim. In fact, what he says here is, listen, you, you know John the Baptist. And John testified about me. John gave witness to who I was. Well, I'm here to tell you that my testimony is even greater than John the Baptist's. My testimony matters even more essentially because what he's saying in this passage is because he's God. Because he has come to do the works of the Father, and the way that he describes it here is, yes, that was good, and you, you listened to his testimony and you learned from it, but I don't need a man's testimony. There wasn't an intrinsic need for Jesus to have that because he is God and his works reflect the power of God, and that's why his self-testimony is even greater than that of John the Baptist's. But the thing I just wanted you to see there is what he described John as in verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp. The word in the Greek is the ordinary word for just a common household lamp. The, the, the listener to Jesus at that moment thought of their little oil-fed lamp that sat on the table that lit up the room at their house. A candle is, is the way we would look at that. Just something that, that lights up a, a particular spot. So he is saying about John... He is, a, he is a flame burning in the darkness. He is a, this single flame that is burning. Jesus, by contrast, is the blazing, bright, eternal light of truth. I mean, the picture that John has tried to give to us and will give to us throughout his text is Jesus is this light that darkness can never overcome, and darkness tries to overcome Jesus, and it, it fails to succeed at that. John the Baptist just like you and I, it's like a candle. 
And one day that, that candle, the life of that candle, will flicker out. Um, like James 4 says, our lives are, are, are like a vapor, and, and it vanishes. It's here for a while like a mist, and then it disappears. Over the summer, we read from Ecclesiastes time and time again how life is fleeting, how it is, it, it, it's here for a time, and it seems to us like we're going to hold on to it for a while, and then it's, it's gone, and then it vanishes. Well, apply that now to John's calling as one who is to be a witness, and, and frankly, by application to our own calling to be witnesses. We're lamps. We're candles. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, then in the pattern of John the Baptist, you are like that flame. It's an important role. Don't, don't diminish it by any stretch because we're, we're comparing and contrasting. It may seem like it's insignificant. No, it's delegated by God that we be given this precious role of being able to be lights that point people to Jesus Christ, that illuminate the way to Jesus Christ. Our, our flame is vastly pale in comparison to him, and yet that's God's design that you and I be in that unique place of being lights that would shine in the darkness and would show people Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke of that, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Live in such a way that when they see you, they see something different and there's no other explanation for it than this must be God at work in that, in that life. And you give testimony to that as well. You, if there's any uncertainty on their part about where that life is coming from, you give credit to, to, to Almighty God as the one who's working in you by his grace. Philippians 2.15, be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The, the, the presumption there is you're living in a dark world. It's a sinful world where, where evil seems to be the norm, and so you live differently. Your life should shine in a unique way so that when people look, maybe they can't quite explain it, but they know there's something different that allows you to point them back to Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was a witness for Jesus Christ, pointing people to him. So when Jesus comes as John is baptizing at the Jordan and Jesus appears in John 1.29, says, John says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John sees that there is his calling. It is to prepare the way, but then it is to point and say, he's the one. That's who you need to look to. He's the one that has come to take away sin and to save you. And John, John lives to show people that Jesus is the one who is the, the Savior that God has anointed. And yet John was a man, a candle, sent to, to shed light in a dark place so that it would point people to the true light. That's what you and I are. In a sinned, darkened world, we are gifted with God's Spirit and empowered by God's Spirit and, and His Word to be lights shining in the darkness. Remember the old children's Sunday school song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Gonna Let It Shine? Yeah, it is. It's a simple little light, but by God's empowering and God's grace, that's one of the tools that he uses to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ, and that's what he calls us to be. There's a sense in which if you think about that, it seems absurd. It, it's, it's like taking a flashlight and using it to point out the sun to someone. Say, see that sun over there? Well, of course they see the sun, because it's, it's a brilliant light, and your flashlight seems to be nothing in comparison. 
The difference, though, spiritually, is even though the Creator has, has literally saturated this creation in His light, man suppresses the truth. Man loves darkness. Man hates coming to the light. And, and so that's where Jesus kindly in His grace surrounds sinful man with people like you and I who are trusting in Jesus to be lamps in that person's life so that when they reach a hard time or they're struggling with sin, we can be the lamps that can help point them and show them that there's a true light here. There is a Savior here that offers you hope. That's the beauty of God's design. God in his grace, just as Paul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians, using the weak things, the foolish things, to confound the wise. God using the, the small, simple candle of an ordinary man sent by God to be a witness and using that to draw people to himself. So then verse 9, John 1 verse 9. The true light, now Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We've seen the contrast of identity. John as a human lamp, Jesus as the divine light. Second contrast, going back first to verse 7, where it says that John was a witness, and then this description of Jesus giving light and, and drawing people. The second contrast is a contrast of ministry. Jesus, John is a witness. Jesus is the Savior. John is one who is called to be a witness. Jesus is the Savior who is the true light. That passage, that verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world is used by those who hold to the false belief of universalism to say, well, see that, ultimately everyone gets the light. In the end, everyone is saved because it says that this true light comes to everyone and so therefore everyone somehow is, is converted. The, the problem with that is you have verse 12 that goes on to say, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So John sets that idea aside very quickly. The idea of Jesus being the, the true light who comes to everyone is really this the fact that Jesus is sort of the dividing line in God's work. Jesus is the dividing line in history. When Jesus comes, his life, his death, and his resurrection separate all of humanity. You either believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, you believe that he was who he says he is, sent from God, and you rest your life in him and you come to the light, or you remain in darkness and you flee the light. Because of the coming of Jesus Christ, because of his life, death, and resurrection, conviction is brought to the world. It is the convicting work of God to say, you are all sinners, here is the answer. What will you do? How will you respond? Will you embrace Jesus Christ, or will you stay in the darkness? And, and Jesus becomes that, that true light in the sense of that convicting, penetrating light to the world. Romans 1, of course, makes it clear that even though people deny the existence of God. They are suppressing truth that they know to be real. They, they know in their conscience that, that there is this creator, and, and yet the light of Christ is what ultimately makes them accountable. Because Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, they can suppress that truth, but they will still stand before him as judge because the light has come. Verses 10 and 11 make this point that Jesus came to his own. I think this is on two levels. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. 
there, there's two aspects to this, in that he comes to his own, meaning the Jewish people. He is born of a Jew. He is born to Jewish people. He is a Jew. He is of the line of David, of the Messiah. And so he comes to his own, and his own do not receive him. But he is also not an alien to this world because he comes to his own in the sense that he comes to those he has made. I mean, the irony in all this is here is God taking on flesh to come to people that he has made, that he, he is now ministering to, that he has created and breathed life into. Verse 11 is, is really poignant because that, that phrase, he came to his own, could also be translated as he came home. He comes home not only to his, his own people in terms of ethnicity, but he comes home to humanity in the sense of what he's made and what he is rightfully Lord over uh, because all things have been made through him and apart from him nothing was made that has been made, verse 3 told us. It all belongs to the creator. Yet it says the world deliberately rejects him, willfully turns from him. John is a witness to the truth. John is calling people to this light, urging them to turn from their sin and embrace Jesus. That is our role, to be those witnesses. We, we were talking about this Tuesday night in the Invest class, just the, the evangelism and the gospel and all the different challenges that people throw up to elements of the gospel. Oh, you know, sin and, and, and judgment and atonement and all these elements of the gospel. Jesus dying for people's sins and how the world comes up with ways to say, oh, we don't like that part of it. We, we dispute that part of it. The fact of the matter is we are witnessing to the truth. Jesus is the Savior. At, at some point, we've got to leave it with, this is what the Word of God says. This is what John did. This is what we do. He's calling you to repent and to trust in him because he is the true light. He is the Savior. So verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Third contrast. So first one is just in terms of identity, lamp versus light. Second one is the idea of the ministry, the ministry of witnessing and the ministry of actually saving, which is what the light does. The last one is a ministry, a, a, rather a contrast of ability. And this one is the contrast between a limited instrument and a sovereign savior. John, like you and I, is limited. There's only so much John can do when it comes to the salvation of souls. Verse 7 says he is a witness. He is to give witness to Christ. He is versed in the truth. He speaks the truth. He proclaims the truth. He calls people to believe in the truth. That is what we are called to do, right? To know the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to be ready, to give a reason for the hope that is within us, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give a defense. John did that. And as we've seen, it's a hard message and, and the majority tend to turn against it and say, I'm not listening to that, and they reject it for one reason or another. John is doing, though, what we are called to do. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell people the gospel. Tell them who Jesus is, what Jesus did. Appeal to them to believe in Jesus and to trust in Jesus and give that witness, knowing that ultimately it is God who must save when it comes to new birth, it will be out of the will of God. The, the, the essence of this proclamation stems from the fact that we, we call people to repent of their sin because we've all come into life with this natural bent toward selfishness, toward, toward rebellion against God, toward doing our own thing. And Jesus Christ comes 
as the Redeemer sent from God to give his life as a ransom in our place, to take the wrath that we deserve for our sin and to stand in our place to take that punishment and by his death and resurrection to be able to offer us life. God does that in his mercy. You and I are called now to proclaim that, to tell that as the greatest news that we could possibly tell anyone, to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ and and to urge them, as verse 12 says, to receive him to believe in his name. In the ancient world, the, the uh, person's name was encompassed their whole being. And, and so it wasn't just a, a name as an identifier, but to believe in someone's name was to believe in that person. To believe in the name of Jesus was to believe what Jesus claimed about himself, who he said he was, to put your faith and trust entirely in that and to submit to him. A story is told of a missionary to Africa who was trying to translate the Bible, and was trying to find the right word for the tribe that he was with to describe faith and couldn't seem to find it. And one day a messenger from another village ran over to this tribe with a message and he was exhausted after running the whole distance and he threw himself in a hammock and he said some things and the missionary heard a word that he hadn't heard before and he said, that word, what is that? And he told him the word, he said, what does it mean? And he said, it means I've come to the end of myself and I must rest here. And he said, that's my word for faith, that's it right there. That's what we're called to do when we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, is to come to the end of self and say, all of my efforts at trying to impress God, please God, all of my works all come up short. The only way is to rest fully in Jesus Christ, in in his death and resurrection, to rest completely there and to trust in him. That is the part that John does that we are able to do, exhort people. Challenge people, urge people, tell them about Jesus, share our testimony, proclaim the gospel, call them to trust in him, and then rest in that. Because what he goes on to say is is that ultimately these were born, these ones who became children of God, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Even John the Baptist, for as powerful as his preaching was, could not will people into the kingdom of God. He could not drag them across the line to faith as much as he longed for them to do. Um, he, he, the Apostle Paul speaks of that, that, that his longing to even put himself in the place of these unbelievers so that they might know Christ, and yet we cannot by our will drag people into the kingdom. People who are dead in sin, blind in sin, lost in darkness, do not by their own strength of their own will work themselves to a place of being able to come into the light and and breathe life into themselves. They are given life. They are born again by a work of God. And so he says here again, this is not, there's no credit here to ethnicity. It doesn't matter what line they're from. It's not a question. They can't inherit this salvation. They can't sort of will themselves to it. They must be born of God. He must give them life. One commentator says, spiritual birth is not the result of human initiative, but of supernatural origin. The beauty of that is that's where you and I can rest. We can have the hope that God is the one who saves souls. That's that's why in our praying we say, God, please save this loved one, because we believe ultimately that God must change that heart and give new birth. If, If it wasn't for 
God at work in all of this, we would be stuck back at verses 10 and 11 where Jesus comes into the world and his own say, we don't know him, and his own do not receive him, and they reject him. I mean, that's, that's the picture. Apart from the work of God, we're left in a hopeless situation. But because we know that those who believe in him, those who receive his name, are born again because of God, not born of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God, that's what gives us hope, and that's what encourages us to proclaim the gospel. That's what encourages us to, to talk to unbelievers who maybe we've talked to before and share about Jesus Christ because we believe God can do the magnificent work of suddenly opening their eyes and making them see Jesus as they've never seen him before. Suddenly breathe life into them and bring them to that place of repentance and faith. That's where John could rest. John was the lamp, and Jesus was the light, and John could be content there. John was content being a witness, letting Jesus be the Savior. In the end, John and you and I are instruments, chosen by God, called by God, given grace and power by God to be witnesses of the greatest news in the world. We have a tremendous privilege in all of this. But at some level, we've got to be content there knowing that it is then up to a sovereign Savior to give new life. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we have that responsibility to be different, to live different, to speak different, to think different, to respond to trials and tragedies and temptations differently, so that in all of that, people would see Christ. So they would see something that is different about us that we don't take credit for, that we point to a Savior who has transformed us. That allows us to, to point back to the power of the gospel. Know the truths of salvation. We have a responsibility, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, to know the gospel, and to be willing to talk about the gospel, and to seek opportunities to tell people about Jesus Christ. But then having done that, you and I have the ability to rest, and to trust that God will do his work in changing hearts, much as you and I can give testimony of what he did in our own lives, where wonderful people were kind enough to share the truth in some way, and God was gracious to open our eyes to see what a wonderful Savior Jesus Christ is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel, and I pray this morning that if there is anyone here who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, who even in this moment is not certain what would happen if they die and they stood before that righteous judge. Lord, would you, in your grace, open their eyes to see a Savior who gave his life, who died in their place. Today, would you bring them to that place to repent and, and believe in Jesus as Savior. Father, for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, we thank you. We understand how fully undeserving we are of salvation, how fully undeserving we are by our lives of having an eternal hope, an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. And yet by grace you called us into the light and out of darkness. Thank you for that. Thank you for a hope that surpasses everything we face in life. And Father, this week as we head out into our workplaces, as we minister to our families, as we interact with our neighbors across the fence, Whatever those situations might be, Lord, remind us this week of the witness of John, an ordinary man sent from you to give witness to Jesus Christ. 
Cause us by your Spirit's work and the power of your word in us to live differently, to speak and think and act differently. Help us to, to take those opportunities to be bold as John was, to, to know that even in the end when it, it cost him his life, it was still worth it to stand for the light and to stand for truth and to call people to embrace Jesus Christ. Give us that boldness this week and the opportunities that you set before us to proclaim our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.